what is the key success factor for you? I always work with people smarter than me. I go out and find the smartest person and I strike up a collaboration. Welcome to this episode of the Terra Agnostic Talks podcast. My name is Gustav Vidar and together with me in the studio I have the fantastic Annette Andrén. Welcome Annette. Thank you Gustav. How are you today? Fine, it's good. Looking forward to this talk today with Dr. Yes. Sartor. Dr. Sartor, uh, he is an interesting guy. Today we will focus a little bit more on the value of phase three trials, who should run the trials, and how to get this new uh, teragnostic drugs approved. Yes, and also to know the secret behind his success with publishing over 400 peer-reviewed publications and his over 25,000 citations. Mm, That's a lot. Uh, I think we go straight away to the presentation. Take it away. He is a world-renowned prostate cancer expert and has been working in the field since the early 90s. Today, Dr. Oliver Sarter is a leader of Tulane's Prostate Cancer Research Program, a world-class team of cancer professionals performing cutting-edge basic and clinical research and running the largest treatment center for prostate cancer patients in Louisiana. So what, according to Oliver Sarter, are the challenges for Theragnostic to be successful in the future? And how can we turn theragnostic innovations into successful and available therapies? Uh, morning in New Orleans. What are your plans for today? Oh, I have a, I have a busy day with uh, various meetings. Uh, we have a startup for a new clinical trial. Uh, we have a uh, collaboration with a biotech company. We have budget meetings. We have uh, a call with the FDA and uh, a PhD student and uh, programmatic development, among other things. So, yeah, I, I'll, um, uh, I will cover the diverse background today. Sounds like a busy day. Uh, you have uh, been working in the field of prostate cancer since the early 80s. Uh, what drives you? Well, you know, I really enjoy taking care of patients. And uh, actually, small correction there. I started working about 1990 in the field. Um, and I uh, enjoy taking care of patients and trying to make them better. We know that we have uh, a new and successful teragnostic drugs for NET. Uh, and uh, we know that uh, there are drugs for prostate cancer just around the corner. Uh, what are the challenges for teragnostics to be successful in the future? Well, you know, the, the, the critical element really is the trial design and, and results, of course. You know, I, I think that there has been uh, a lot of work in the area that doesn't translate into regulatory approval. Uh, I think if we're going to need to have a goal of improvements in patient care, which is what my goal generally is, then we need to change the regulators and change the reimbursement and change the access to these medications. You know, currently in the U.S., if you're fairly wealthy, you might be able to fly to Germany and pay uh, $50,000, dollars $70,000 and perhaps get some treatment. 
but that's not the goal that I set. My goal is to change the regulatory bodies, the FDA in particular in the United States, and allow access of therapies to be able to move forward with insurance reimbursement. And how should we do that? How should we change the, the authorities? Well, it's, uh, it's actually fairly simple. Uh, all you have to do is to design trials with clinically relevant endpoints that allow the regulators to make a decision uh, that the risk and benefits of a particular intervention is warranted. And, you know, I, I think it, it gets shrouded in mystery if you don't do it. But the truth is, uh, the FDA has a simple task. They have to regulate food and drugs in America, and they want to ensure that the drugs that are available uh, are safe and efficacious. And you have to make a decision about how you demonstrate efficacy. And, you know, in the prostate world, there, there are a couple of ways you can do it. Uh, the traditional way is to have somebody live longer. Um, you might also have somebody live better. Uh, so if you live better or live longer, then, you know, the FDA can take notice. Now, more recently, there's been a, uh, a couple of FDA approvals that have stopped short of living longer or living better. Uh, for instance, uh, the Rucaparib, which is PARP inhibitor, got an accelerated approval based on shrinking tumors, making tumors smaller. And that was an accelerated approval, meaning that it's not a final approval. There'll be more data evaluated in the future before a final approval would be given. Olaparib uh, was actually given a final approval, another PARP inhibitor, and they use something called RPFS, or radiographic progression-free survival, uh, which has been linked as a surrogate to overall survival. And the RPFS actions have now been sort of duplicated. There are two episodes where the FDA has made those sort of decisions. Uh, the profound trial using Olaparib uh, used in RPFS as a primary endpoint. And in addition, there's a trial called the ARCHES trial uh, with upfront insulinamide in combination with, with antigen deprivation therapy, which was also approved off an RPFS endpoint. So you either didn't need to demonstrate that RPFS is improved using fairly strict criteria that have been accepted by the FDA, or you need to show that people live longer, live better. And, and by the way, living living better part hasn't been used in a while in prostate cancer. It's a little bit hard to do um, because there's so many biases associated with uh, the assessment of pain and the like uh, that you have to carefully construct pain trials. I did actually participate in a trial that led to an FDA approval in the 1990s with Samarium-153 based on a pain endpoint, um, carefully controlled, placebo-controlled, blinded trial uh, with assessments by both physicians, patients. And you know, so you can do it. Um, but then you end up with a palliative label, and that's not always as good as an overall survival label. So the simple task is just to have people live longer when you get your drug and perform a properly randomized and constructed trial using the standard of care as a comparison. That's all you have to do. It's, uh, it, it's not that hard in concept. Now, it gets to be hard in fact, you know, because there's uh, a lot of barriers to getting a drug uh, proper, getting a clinical trial properly conducted. Should we change focus more from overall survival? to uh, 
some other endpoint because I think in 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 the most phase three trials, overall survival is the the most important outcome. Yes, overall survival is the most important outcome. Uh, clearly, it takes more than RPFS. You need to have other endpoints trending in the right direction. Um, you know, we have a recent example in the prostate world on a trial called ACES, in which abiraterone was used in the uh, first-line metastatic CRPC setting with the addition of another drug called apalutamide. And the RPFS endpoint was met strongly, uh, about a 7.4 month in the final analysis improvement in RPFS. Uh, however, the OS was not improved. And I think there's a little bit of debate in our field about whether or not that ACES will lead to an approval. Uh, it didn't make the primary endpoint in RPFS, but the other variables may not be quite as positive. And of course, there are costs associated with this type of therapy. Um, so the ACES trial will actually be uh, an interesting point going forward to see how the FDA responds, assuming, of course, that the sponsor, which is uh, Janssen, uh, will submit. It's a fairly well-prescribed uh, series of events that need to occur for RPFS to be properly evaluated. And, and I want to let you know that it's problematic. And I'll give you an example of how it was problematic, say, in the COVID era. Uh, in order to properly assess RPFS, you need to have two groups, uh, your experimental group and your comparator group, and each of them need to be assessed at the same interval. And if you alter the interval, you have altered the potential interpretation of the testing. It needs to be done in the same way. And it needs to be done in a prescribed manner, typically using cross-sectional imaging and bone scintigraphy in a manner that the FDA will accept. And so, you know, I think particularly in certain countries in Europe, there's a desire to use um, nuclear medicine scanning, such as PSMA PET, uh, but that won't do uh, because the PSMA PET has not been linked to the overall survival endpoint. In addition, if someone in the control group doesn't show up for the scan, then that results in what's called a censoring event. And the censoring event is statistically treated in a particular manner. And that it, the, every time a patient is censored, they cannot actually reach the event. So there's a penalty for not performing the scan at a particular time. And in a trial such as the vision trial, uh, this is a potential issue because patients on the control group knew that they were not getting the active treatment. And so would they persist in getting the scans at a regular interval, at the prescribed interval, in a manner exactly what the trial prescribed? And the answer is potentially problematic. So the ability to treat RPA, or, or, or to treat a patient and to take a trial forward and have RPFS as an endpoint is not an easy task. Now, one of the things that can also be problematic in survival, just to let, let you know, is a crossover. And when you cross over patients from one arm to another, the opportunity to interfere with survival becomes paramount. And there are ways of adjusting for such crossover, and that was done in the PROP inhibitor trials with the Laparib. Uh, but nevertheless, you do have to be quite cautious in how you address the RPFS from a variety of logistical perspectives and OS, particularly if there's crossover. So those are some of the nuances of, of a FDA approval. We're talking about regulatory approval. 
which is what we need to do in order to get these agents into the broad healthcare systems of our countries. And how how do you how do you think that this can be solved? Then that there is a lack of uh, what data you can really derive from the phase three studies and the regulatory demand. What do you see? What will be the 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 way few, uh, forward to get the, those? Well, it it really takes uh, really good investigators. It takes investigators who are accustomed to running phase three trials. Um, and I think there's a penalty for the inclusion of investigators who are not accustomed to running phase three trials. So you, you you have to start with good investigators. And if you have that and a good trial design, then you stand a fighting chance. Uh, but if you have a bad investigator, then the entire trial can, can be subterfuged. It can be disrupted. Uh, because of the inability to properly keep patients on a, on a schedule that is required for the FDA to properly evaluate. And this is how you define a, a good investigator? A good investigator is one who has the capability to put patients on trial that are thoroughly informed as to the consequences of being on both arms. You know, there is a tendency at times to be enamored with what is new. And what is old may not be viewed in the same manner. But the patient is properly informed by a good investigator, or a good investigative site has a very comprehensive informed consent. And the patient understands before they ever begin the trial that there's two possibilities, not just one, and that there are certain requirements for trial participation that are essential for the trial to succeed. And not every person is going to be susceptible to being randomized in such a manner. And a good investigator will recognize that not every patient is appropriate for randomization. And it's not about how many patients you put on trial, it's how many patients you keep on trial. Because the penalty for poor investigation, the penalty for poor follow-up, is rather extreme. Yeah. It's called a failed trial. But how do you, I mean, there's an ethical dilemma as well, or you don't see that? Absolutely. There is the potential for eth- ethical dilemmas, and we attack that through the possibility of, of a concept we call equipoise. And if there is not equipoise, you cannot properly run a trial. It would be unethical. If you know, if you know that a particular agent is better than another, well, then you shouldn't be doing the trial. That's an unethical trial. So there has to be an experimental nature to what is being done. Uh, It would be unethical to give someone less than standard of care. And if the new agent is better than the standard of care, then that becomes a new standard of care. So then you have a disruption of equipoise, and the investigator who believes that one arm is better than another should not participate in the trial. So this is really the setup, a setup of a specific study that is uh, the clue to this, as you say. Well, what, yeah, I mean, everything starts with ethics. I mean, if you if if your trial is not ethical, then you you have no trial, or you should have no trial. I mean, my goodness gracious, you 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 can't involve patients in a trial that is not uh, appropriately evaluated for each arm. And if equipoise is not present, then you should never start the trial in the first place. But there's a lot of dropouts in uh, studies uh, today, isn't it? Or crossover. Well, crossover, sorry, crossover. Yeah, well, I, 
yeah, well, crossover is a design that enables people to participate in the trial till progression and then receive an experimental agent afterwards. So that is one way of improving the access of patients to the trial and encouraging them not to drop out. So, you know, imagine for a second that, that you have a cancer and you you believe that one trial is better than another, one part of the trial is better than another. So if you randomize to the control arm, you say, well, well drat, you know, I didn't get the better therapy. And perhaps if I told you that, well, if you do show progression, then I'll give you the therapy that you would like to have, assuming you still meet the eligibility criteria, and that's called crossover. And it's one device in order to keep patients within the trial and participating uh, that has been used. And for instance, the, the Elaprim trial called the Profound Study used that device. And who should run the trials? Well, is it the industry or academia, or should we go do it together? You know, I, I'm actually a fan of doing it together. Um, you know, it turns out that academia doesn't have the resources. You know, these trials are expensive. They'll run 75 or 100 million American dollars to be able to bring a big trial to conclusion. It's uh, expensive to run, and the academics just don't have the resources to do it properly. Um, on the other hand, the, the, the industry, even though they have the resources, often don't have the expertise. It's amazing. If you go to even talk to the big companies, that they don't really have a lot of disease expertise. They're experts in patents. They're experts in chemistry. They're experts in manufacturing. They're uh, ex experts in legal. They're experts in reimbursement. But they may or may not have an expert in prostate cancer. So they need to call upon individuals who are expert in the field in an effort to understand the field thoroughly. And what rarely is understood, unless you're sort of an academic, is the landscape that we deal with. You know, it's not just when you're putting together a trial, what happens today to today's patients, it's also tomorrow's patients. You have to be aware of the changing landscape. And if you devise a trial that takes seven years to read out, by the time your trial reads out, it may not even be relevant anymore. So I, I prefer the academic industry uh, collaboration, um, and, and you have to end up where the industry listens to the academics, and the academics listen to the industry, because sometimes the academics are not realistic, and they forget that in the end, you have to have a return on investment for those people who've upfronted the capital. You know, you can't go spend $75 million of somebody else's money and expect them just to give it away. They want a return on that investment. And so there has to be a, that consideration as well. So I'm a, personally a fan of these collaborative ventures. And with, in the academic world, who should be driving, for example, prostate cancer studies? What speciality? Well, those people are expert in the field. And, you know, as, as a whole, um, in the United States, that's medical oncology for these advanced patients, for the early stage patients, you might have um, different experts involved. Um, so the expertise required may be dependent in part on the stage of the patient. The advanced disease in the U.S. is typically the medical oncologist. Now, that's not true globally. In, in Germany, it turns out that the urologists manage most of these advanced patients. Um, there's 
such a trainer uh, in, in the UK known as a clinical oncologist trained in radiation and, um, and uh, medical oncology. My, my, my friend Chris Parker is a clinical oncologist and is uh, really a superb investigator. And, and he's uh, the type of person who's not a medical oncologist, but he's a great investigator for advanced prostate cancer. Is it more the personality maybe than uh, the speciality in the- Well, there's geography because, you know, you, you have certain geographic preferences. Um, in the U.S., there's only one or two urologists who really do advanced stage patients. Um, and in, in Canada, it's, it's sort of the same. There's, you know, only a couple of urologists. Um, on the other hand, you know, you can come at it from more than one angle. You just have to have the expertise. It, it, it really depends on the, on the background of the individual. Um, it, it turns out that a lot of the theranostics are being run through nuclear medicine, but there are not a lot of nuclear medicine docs in the U.S. that have actual expertise in running the phase three trials. And it, it, it is a, it, it's difficult if you're a nuclear medicine doc because you're not accustomed to treating prostate cancer patients and you have complications. And, and so the, the specialty is less important than the training, the experience, and the ability to properly conduct a trial. And I think in general, that starts with your training. You know, if, if you're not trained in clinical trials during your residency and fellowship, then you're never going to be probably very adept at it. And also, as you mentioned, to inform, to have, to have contact with the patient and to inform the patient what is the uh, are set up in in to be included in the study. Yes, and and you know so one of the one of the issues that has been problematic in the in in the field of the theranostics is the nuclear medicine docs are the ones that administer the active treatment, right? But they don't manage the patients. They don't know how to manage the patients if the treatment is not being given, and and this is a very problematic uh, issue. Um, it's, it's the type of thing that cannot really be overcome if your doctor cannot manage the patient. No, first of all, the patient is the center of the trial and the doctor who manages the patient is the key physician. That doctor is going to be the one doing the informed consent. That doctor is going to be the one managing the control arm. That doctor is going to be doing the standard of care. That doctor is going to be ordering the CAT scans that are part of the uh, of the routine assessment of the patients. And those particular skill sets are not acquired overnight. So there has been, I think, a bit of frustration at times among the nuclear medicine community over the inability to get things approved through the regulatory agencies, such as the FDA. But the FDA has a certain manner of thought. The FDA has a certain way of approaching a problem. And they're not going to change. You have to adapt to the FDA. The FDA will not adapt to you. So even though I've heard people say, well, the FDA is crazy. Well, that may be. But you're not going to get your drug approved if you believe the FDA is crazy and you don't adapt to their thought processes. They're the judge and the jury and the prosecutor. They hold all the cards. 
Cool. Yes. Uh, on top of uh, that, uh, the nuclear medicines plays a uh, part here. Is there any other things that is uh, specific to diagnostics and phase three versus other uh, pharmaceutical areas? Yes. Um, so first of all, the diagnostics appear in, in several ways. And I, I think a, a really critical value to the diagnostics is in the drug development. You know, it's wonderful to be able to see the distribution of the drug. And from understanding that distribution, you can have some insight into whether or not it'll be active or not. Imagine giving a drug that never reaches the tumor. Well, if I'm giving an unlabeled drug, well, I never know if the drug reaches the tumor or not. But with a theranostic, I can see exactly where it goes. And if I can assess the tumor, then I can assess the target. And if I can assess the target, I can assess the dosimetry. If I can assess the dosimetry, I can come up with some rational thinking as to whether or not that drug may be active or not. And the better we hit the target, the more likely the, the target will succumb. Now, there are limits to theranostics. For instance, if you look with, say, PSMA, then what you are imaging is not the tumor, you're imaging PSMA, which happens to be expressed in the tumor. But if the tumor doesn't express PSMA, you won't see it. So you have to realize that not every lesion will light up on the PSMA scan. And the incorporation of a selection criteria when you're using a theranostic agent is very different than a typical drug. So that's called an image-based biomarker, if we want to use a fancy term. And the image-based biomarker allows us to segregate patients into categories, uh, to stratify them, if you will, and then we can choose to treat some and choose not to treat others. And that's exactly the advantage of a theranostic, is that you can make these decisions over the imaging that comes from your agent. Now, you have to match up the imaging pretty carefully with the therapeutic, to make sure that your imaging and your therapeutic are actually going to the same spot. And there are some perfect partners, say copper 64, copper 67, and then there are maybe less perfect partners, but they seem to work quite well, like gallium 68 PSMA and lutetium 177 PSMA. So those are not the same isotope, and the half-lives are a little different, and the molecules are a little different. The PSMA 11 is used for the imaging with gallium 68, and the PSMA 617 is used as the uh, therapy, uh, which is bound to lutetium 177. So you've got, you know, a, a little bit of mismatch, but probably not important. But yeah, theranostics vary in, from the regular things. You might also be able to assess repetitively through imaging the ability to eliminate the target. Now, that's not the same thing as a tumor. And this has led to some misunderstandings, I think. Because people, if you treat with PSMA and then you image repetitively with PSMA, you're not necessarily watching the tumor go away when your PSMA scan gets better. What you're doing is watching the PSMA binding go away. And if I were a tumor, the first thing I would do if I encountered a PSMA uh, radionuclide binding agent is I would just get rid of the PSMA because I'd want to take that Achilles heel off of my body and shed it and go elsewhere. And of course that happens, you know, we look at the ability to use the CAR T cells, for instance, and they've been targeting CD19. This is a particular antigen. 
So how do tumors escape CD19 targeted uh, immunotherapy? Well, they get rid of their CD19 and then just keep going. So tumor cells can shed their antigens. Tumor cells can change in ways that we don't always anticipate in their ecosystems. If we think the virus mutates, and we know that it does, like this coronavirus story, these things mutate in a, in a pretty, um, pretty, pr pretty standard fashion. But if you want to have a particularly uh, superb opportunity to mutate, what you do is you take an immunocompromised host and let the virus go through many rounds of replication in one individual without a strong immune system. What happens then? You end up with heterogeneity. What happens with heterogeneity that arrives from mutations? Then you have these dangerous mutants arrive. Well, imagine what happens with a tumor. Same thing. You know, we don't eliminate the tumor. The tumor stays in place. We don't cure it. We don't eliminate every, every last cell. And all of a sudden, the cells that are resistant become the predominating force, and they're mutants. And how do you do that? What is the solution? Well, <laughs> gosh. <laughs> I was a little bit late, so I have to catch up now. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I'll simply say that if, um, if we were perfect, what we would do is understand the mechanisms of resistance and then anticipate those mechanisms with the next therapeutic intervention. Now, let's imagine a place where we actually are pretty damn perfect. Uh, let's go to the EGF receptor on certain lung cancers being driven by EGFR. And, you know, we have these first-generation inhibitors, and we inhibit the EGFR, but interestingly, the EGFR mutates in a pretty specified fashion, and that specification has been determined through careful study. And now inhibitors have been designed to inhibit the mutations that are encoding resistance to the first EGFR inhibitor, And so now we have better EGFR inhibitors. We give them, they inhibit the, they in, inhibit the wild type, and then they inhibit the mutation too. Well, that's rather gorgeous, isn't it? That's quite pretty. Same thing has been true for some of the ALK inhibitors uh, where you anticipate the, the change. And um, in, in CML, um, where, where you have the, um, um, oh gosh, what's the, what's the damn molecule in, in, in CML? Um, where you're up with the tyrosine kinase that, that is overexpressed, and uh, BCR ABLE. So you have the ABLE mutations and the kinase sort of anticipated. So there, there are different ways to anticipate, but it only comes through careful study. The problem is that solid tumors are often more complex than, um, than what I've just given illustrations of. Many of the solid tumors are in a position where they are going to mutate in a multiplicity of ways. We don't always have the ability to intervene in those subsequent mutations. And you end up losing whole chunks of chromosomes, and you end up losing things like RB, uh, the retinoblastoma gene, and then you have uh, a very poorly differentiated, uh, proliferating tumor that we, we don't have great therapies for. Uh, so your simple question is, well, how do we counteract that? Um, it, it's not so simple. And, of course, everybody's working on it. I mean, that's what we do. We try to de develop better therapies. Uh, there's the neuroendocrine-type therapy, and we have a few things that might target neuroendocrine. And diagnostically, there's 
um, things like we used to call it the bombasin receptor after the little frog skin peptide. Uh, it's actually the gastrin releasing peptide receptor, and that may be another target that gets overexpressed in uh, tumors that have neuroendocrine differentiation, and maybe we use dual inhibition. Um, but, you know, those studies are still in, in their emphasis. But if you hit, uh, uh, a strategy is uh, hit uh, fast and hit hard, kill them all. Yes. That's, that's the best way. <laughs> kill them all. Yes. Undoubtedly. <laughs> <laughs> all, all right, wipe them off the planet. Sold. <laughs> and the same thing for the COVID virus, right? You know, yes. we, we, we have a coronavirus. Uh, if we kill them up front, never give them a chance to mutate, uh, let's certainly not let anybody with an immunocompromised status get a, get a virus. Oh, my gosh. You know, that's just a setup for failure because we end up with these uh, ongoing proliferations. That's probably what happens in bats, by the way. You know, the bats can interestingly harbor the virus over an extended period of time, and they don't eliminate it. So before you know it, uh, uh, the, the, the systems where you have proliferation occur without elimination is when um, you end up with trouble. Well, that's called a tumor, right? Proliferation occurs without elimination, and all of a sudden you've got trouble. Uh, some weeks ago, week ago, we uh, talked to Rodney Hicks uh, from Australia, and he uh, talking about the value of sequencing. Uh, uh, you know, use the right tools uh, in the right phase of the tumor, because we have a lot of tools now. We have for prostate cancer, we have this diagnostic approach, and we have a lot of hormone drugs, and we have other type of treatments. How should we? Uh, use the right tool in the right phase of the tumor? Yeah, no, great question. And um, first of all, uh, Dr. Hicks is a, is a very thoughtful and uh, very uh, superb investigator and uh, an inventor as well. Mm. And uh, I have a lot of respect for Kim and his work. And when he talks about sequencing, he's raising an important point because If you catch the tumor perhaps a little bit earlier, you can eliminate it all, right? Mm. And, you know, the way to do that is to combine effective therapies so we have not just the hit of the radiopharmaceutical, but also the hit maybe the engine deprivation. And, of course, we're, we're doing that right now. Uh, we're using a combination of hormonal therapies and radiopharmaceuticals uh, in a trial design that I'm um, hoping to complete relatively soon. Uh, working in combination with an industry partner to do one of these big, big trials that is required for FDA approval. Mm. So, uh, you know, things like the vision trial have been sort of toward the tail end of people's life after effective therapies have already been given, and there's more heterogeneity. If you want to diminish that heterogeneity, you just start earlier. Mm. Maybe you can kill them all. I like I like Anna. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's all we have to do just kill them all I mean you have more than 400 um, uh, publications and quotation 25,000 and you have been I mean it's so impressive all that you have done uh, what is the key success factor for you I always work with people smarter Ooh. than me I go, <laughs> find, I go out and find the smartest person and I strike up cool. a collaboration Very good, and 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 one question more: What is yeah. what is I mean on top of that working with cool 
the smart people, what is the driver? Why? I mean, why ending up with prostate cancer and all those publications? Yeah, I mean, prostate cancer was, um, I think it it, it was an interesting sort of opportunity. I I had a little background in endocrinology, so endocrinology made sense to me. And this is a hormonally responsive neoplasm. Um, And and I think, you know, the, 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 I have maybe a, a couple of addictions. You know, one is toward trying to make patients better. Uh, I really, truly enjoy making patients better, particularly a challenging case, a difficult case. And, you know, maybe other people have sort of thrown up their, their hands and not known what to do. And if I can sort of figure it out and really help that patient, that's very, very meaningful to me. Um, that's that's one thing. and. And I think also a potential love for discovery, you know, the opportunity to derive new insights through the scientific process. Um, I, I love uh, I love discovery. And if you love discovery and you love making patients better, then what you're driven to do is try to discover new ways to make patients better. And that's that's sort of been the part that drives me. On top of science, what do you like? I'm very curious. Well, I... Um, Gosh, there are a lot of things I like. Uh, I like uh, birds, for instance. Um, and I'm not a huge bird watcher, but I have a lot of joy when I take in um, new birds and discover new species for myself and see things. So I love to be outdoors. I love to go fishing. Um, and the prettier the place is that I go fishing, the nicer it is. So um, you know, f- fishing in Sweden is is pretty nice. I've done a little Where bit. Where in of that. Sweden? I'm sorry, I forget the name of the river. But uh, the you know the opportunity to to fish in beautiful waters is something I, I truly Fantastic. enjoy. I enjoy being outside. Who do you think should receive the Nobel Prize for their efforts in diagnostics? Oh, I'm not sure it's yet deserving of a Nobel Prize. Uh, I think the there is. Um, been a demonstration of efficacy in the neuroendocrine tumors. I'm uh, hopeful that we'll soon have efficacy for those in the um, realm of prostate cancer. Um, I think the group at Heidelberg has been remarkably innovative. And uh, there are some very talented investigators uh, there in Heidelberg that I, th- I think have been uh, leaders in the field. And whether or not that's, uh, we'll have to wait before the Nobel Prize, uh, in my opinion, needs a little bit more time to, to prove itself. Thank you. Uh, who do you think we should invite to the podcast? Oh, gosh. Um, Do you, do you want to explore the Theranostics a little more? Yes. To, yeah. yeah. More about Theranostics. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I mentioned uh, I mentioned Chris Parker in yep. in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Chris is very thoughtful. Uh, mm-hmm. He's very uh, he's a very good investigator. Uh, I've worked with Chris on um, on projects and always find him to be uh, superb. Mm. Um. The you know have you spoken to to any of the German group at Heidelberg? No, we I think yeah. we need to do that. 
Yeah, you you yes. have a corn. Yeah, uh, mm. would, would be oh. would be uh, quite good. Ken Herman, Ken Herman, Ken is very very good. He's also uh, he, he expresses yeah. himself well. Uh, I've I've done uh, I've done collaborations with uh, Ken as well, and uh, I, I like yeah. him very much. Thank you, Oliver, for your time. And I think you have the next yeah. appointment in just yeah. two minutes. Yeah. So, I'm gonna uh, run. All right. Thank you so Thank much. You. So Bye. good to meet Bye. you. Bye. Bye. Take care. Yes, Annette, that was Oliver Sarter. What do you think about this episode? Wow, this fantastic energy of his. And no wonder that he has achieved what he has achieved so far. Yeah, and valuable insights about, you know, who should run the trials, what is the right outcome uh, of the trials. Um, ah, that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. And a little bit, you can say he shoots from the hip, but he hits the target at the same time. Yeah. And uh, mm. he's brave and he's also humble. This answer that uh, what is key to success, this is really that he chooses to work with uh, people that are smarter than him and i think that is smart yeah that's very smart, smart. and that's what i'm doing i'm working with you on it of course yes. uh <laughs> what do you think should we close for the today's podcast yeah we do that if you want to reach out to us please visit some nordic at linkedin or send us an email podcast at some nordic.se podcast at some nordic.se thank you for today annette see you in two weeks thank you bye bye stay tuned stay safe bye bye